Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 427th episode of Constructed Chrism. I am your host, Mason, and I'm joined by my co-host, Abe. Abe, how are you doing today? I'm doing so good, man. I had a great weekend of magic and relaxing, mm-hmm. and now I'm excited to podcast. Really awesome. Living the dream. You went down to the Legacy Pit, right, to play the RCQ on Saturday? Yeah, yeah. I made a little day trip with some of my local friends down to play the modern 1K RCQ that was on Saturday. It was like at 1230, but we went down really early to get breakfast at Pearly's with a friend of mine who was up there for the Legacy event up from Florida. And yeah, it was just like a really, really cool to be at a big event with coverage and everything. Saw Anurag, saw Corey, Ross was there playing the uh, the RCQ. One of our patrons we got to meet, other Mason, he actually wound up taking the thing down. <laughs> Uh, one of my friends who I drove with top aided. It was just a really exciting and fun, uh, fun event. Got to hang out and and see a bunch of people jam. It was sick. That's awesome. It's great. Yeah, it was, it was really cool to watch that coverage of that event and uh, see what thing happened there. And it was great to hear. You know, obviously, I would love if you were to win, but having a patron, let alone a fellow Mason, win is a pretty exciting moment. So you know, we'll take those. A Mason wins an RCQ every weekend. That's just the truth. It just feels like Masons don't lose these days. It's a good era to be Mason. <laughs> it's the underscore era, the winning era. But we do want to get into our Always Brewing segment. Spencer is out this week. He has got some family stuff going on, some work things, kind of like he talked about last week on the show. We love him. We hope to see him here again soon. He's going to be gone next week as well for some work stuff. But we have a really exciting guest for next week. So get ready for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. CCMPG is in its guest era, Abe, and it's going great. But... What's more important is always improving, because that is the main point of the show. And my always improving moment comes from just looking at sideboard plans, specifically in Pioneer, and trying to figure out, like, okay, what is the thing that's going to most af- be the most effective over a lot of games, when specifically looking at Mono Green. So Mono Green historically has no sideboard. You know, like, I, I made it... There's been a bunch of tweets and... A bunch of things where it's like green sideboard guide and the, the, all it is you know is text that says don't but I, I don't think that's actually true you know i think there's actually a good amount of room to actually sideboard with the deck and move things around and i think it's a little underexplored and while it's good to have memes and haha i think it is also good to look at the sort of stuff and kind of figure out what we can be doing so some great examples of this are people have started playing extra Sky Sovereign console flagships just as a way to kill opposing Karns and have some extra game against Red Black and their grindy plan. You know, they bring in a bunch of hate for us now. Now they have Shieldred. It's really changed where they can beat up on so many other decks just thanks to Shieldred and Liliana that they no longer need to have as many cyborg slots for other decks, which means they can put them in other spaces, which I think Derek talked a little bit about last week, but y'all didn't go into crazy detail. And I love last week's episode, but that's like a ramification, right? So now it's like, okay, how does that affect green? And it means that, you know, they have a bunch of extinction events. It's just good against us, good against mono white, just a really strong card. And so having extra sky sovereigns lets you have a little extra game in the mirror, be able to kill Karns, which is often something that ends up locking the game for a little bit, especially if the board stalled. But then also there have been other innovations, like someone played, I believe they top eighted the challenge this weekend, or I'm sorry, the RCQ that was on Modo, but they played main deck Lovestruck Beast. And I think you could sideboard that as well, just as like an anti-aggro card and something you can play early and, you know, triggers your Kioras, protects your walkers really well, gives you more one into three plays. I think there's a lot of space to look in that sort of thing. And there are so many other things we could talk about too. I could spend 
like literally 20 minutes talking to you about weird cards I've seen people play on the sideboards from shifting Ceratops in the past to, you know, a bunch of voracious Hydras now. And just looking over those and trying to figure out, A, like when is it strong and when is it good? Because that's what matters, right? Like obviously the weekend changes all the time, but trying to figure out when things are good and then trying to figure out like, okay, in the dark, what is the kind of the best thing? Because if I'm going to write an article on this, it's something that someone's going to, you know, play even if that's not the best weekend for it. And you know, that sort of thing doesn't live and doesn't change. So, you know, when you're like a patron of the show, you can go in there and ask us questions. But if I post something on Card Kingdom, it's kind of stuck there. So spent some time doing that for Mono Green. And it was really interesting. And it was just kind of good to check in on that stuff. So, yeah, a lot of cool stuff happening with Mono Green and Pioneer. But it's some really like cool in the sense of like, isn't science cool, kids? And, you know, it's just like a volcano erupting in the science lab yeah. so yeah yeah it's like uh really trying to hammer out the not even the last one percent of like the optimal deck list but the last point one percent to get you to mm-hmm. like all right this is exactly what i should be doing right now this is the right way to build it let's do it let's go and this is how i should like sideboard all my matchups and this is how it maps really really important stuff to like be able to get in the gritty about uh, if you are like playing at a really high level, if you're preparing for the regional championship, your RCQ, whatever it is, like knowing how to do that and make sure you know how to tune. But definitely a little bit of the uh, all right, let's memorize a periodic table kind of yeah, <laughs> kind of fun in <laughs> science, not the uh, not the vinegar and baking soda thing go boom. All right, Abe. Right now, so decide for me. Am I driving two and a half hours to play a Pioneer RCQ this Saturday? I'm springing this on you. I'm deciding for you right now. right now. Yeah, your word is know. You're going to want to do it anyway. What else are you going to do on your Saturday? Oh, man. I'm driving by myself. That's such a long day. All right, let's move on. <laughs> you signed me up for it. I can't back down now. My always improving moment was actually something I put into practice a bit, not to my own benefit at the RCQ, but to the benefit of a friend of mine who went on to top eight, which was actually taking the time to, like, something I never do, but I realized through... Uh, an RCQ I played two weeks ago, Pioneer RCQ, is that, like, when these fields are really small, or even if you're just the only player who's, like, you know, you start off 3-0, and now you kind of know that you're you're in the running, the field starts to narrow down, just taking the time to capture the equity on the table of, if you have time, go around and look at the decks that you might be paired against, know what players are playing, you know, write those things down, and know it and know what your plans are for those matchups if you get paired against them the next round so that you can save that mental energy um following so for example my friend who ended up making top eight chris song he was playing Murktide and he'd never played against red black scam before and there was actually like a lot of scam that was doing well early on in that event i think there was like four four players who started off uh like 3-0 or 3-1 with uh with scam after three or four rounds and, like, he'd never played the match before. He didn't really know how he was sideboarding. And so I found someone with a copy of the deck and we were, like, jamming with it. And he wind- winds up getting paired against it the next two rounds and wins them and is able to draw twice in the top eight. Because he didn't have to figure it out on the fly, he was able to, to have that advantage. And so talking about it again on the way, on the drive home, I really just realized that there was a lot of things like that where I... I kind of just let myself leave that equity on the table of like, I could just give myself this edge by doing a little of legwork between rounds, but I kind of choose not to because it's work or, you know, it feels like 
kind of unsporting in some contexts or, you know, some people look at you some sort of way for doing it. But when it comes to tournaments that I really am playing just to win, you know, allowing myself to capture all those edges and really think beyond just, it's already focused a lot on my gameplay. And, you know, if I'm putting all of the time in to try to win tournaments, putting all the time in to actually try to win the tournament, not just in like making good strategic decisions in game and giving myself, uh, you know, edges through, you know, scouting, thinking about things beforehand, preparing for the tournament that I'm currently in when I have the information. It's something that I was actually able to put into practice and was really, really helpful. So I'm, I'm hoping to, you know, kind of remind myself to let myself do that in the future. You know, if I know what someone's playing or I can know what someone's playing, actually do something for it. I think even just like the maybe the smaller scale version of that, of like you get up and you talk to your friends and you're like, there were three scam players at my table, you know, like, what do I do as hammer? You know, we're like, I think this, what do y'all think? And even just taking like, you know, five minutes to talk about that is such a, a, you know, a huge thing, even though it is kind of work, but yeah, that's great. I mean, there's always like a lot of those things left on the table, but if the only thing that matters is winning kind of like, you know, one K RCQ, that is the case, right? Like obviously you get a couple bucks or whatever, but you know, you drove like a long way to go play a tournament, you know, it can't hurt to just, you know, walk around. And honestly with money, how a lot of times what I do, Abe is, especially when I like an event like that, I walk around and I only try to remember the decks that are just like, I can't win unless something crazy happens. So like I see a Belcher player and I look at their play mat and I'm like, bunny Belcher, bunny Belcher, you know? And if I see the bunny, I'm like, all right, I got a mulligan to some craziness, you know? But yeah, I feel you there. It's definitely something that I could uh, improve on as well. So it's awesome. If you want to support the show, it will always be free, but you can go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. Uh, this week we get to new patrons, Liam and Fanhova, I think that is how I say your username. I hope that is correct. Thank you so much for supporting the show. You're awesome. It should always be free. But support like this does make it easier to do the show and do things like our, our standard tournament, which we're going to discuss here in just one second. Once we're done talking about GG Lehigh, which is the sponsor of the show, they have been so great with us doing everything from you know our open series that we've been running and about to have our second one here very soon. We're talking about in a minute. And you know doing the coverage for the YouTube channel. Uh, I check in and watch some of those every now and again and see, you know, people are really liking having not only coverage, but paper magic games being played and put up on YouTube. And it's cool to see, you know, kind of the Utah metagame and watch their events. So really enjoy their stuff. And if you want to get 10% off uh, all your purchases at GG Lehigh, check the show description and use code CCMTG10. As for our event that we talked about that GG Lehigh helps us run, we are finally have a date, so it's going to be December 4th of this year, which is a Sunday. It's going to be standard. We're playing on Arena. It's going to be $10, and anyone can enter. Or if you're a Diamond-level patron, you get to be entered for free. Just in case you're curious, Diamond-level patron is $10. So if you're like, oh, I like want to play this tournament anyways, and blah, 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 I thought about supporting the show, being a Diamond-level patron is the best way to do it. You're going to get your tournament for free. You're going to also get all these other things like the pre and post show, the Patreon only episodes, being able to ask Patreon questions. So you want to make sure to check that out. But hey, if that's not your thing, you just want to for $10. It is open to everyone. Once again, standard December 4th, 2022 coming up soon. I don't know. Is today the fifth? Today's the... Today is October 3rd. Oh, dang. We were one day off having it be like, you know, 60 days. But... It's going to be standard. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be post-Brothers War standard too, which means we're getting dangerously close to the Anaheim RC in relation to this. So it'll be pretty cool. We're going to try and have these events link up with the RC at the time. So 
you know, whenever the next RC after Anaheim gets announced for the format, which no inside information, I suspect it's going to be modern Abe. We'll probably run a modern tournament. If they do standard again, we'll do standard. We're going to try and sync up with them. So once again, it's going to be awesome. It's $500 in prize with scaling on entry. So, you know, the more people enter, the more money you're going to get out, but minimum $500. We'll talk more about that event as we get closer in each every week. But Abe, it's time to pass it to you. What's our what's our training grounds for this week? What's our main topic? Yeah, so just one more thing about the Open is that it will be held on Arena instead of MTGO. I know there's a lot of people who felt like they couldn't play the MTGO Pioneer uh, Open that we held because they didn't have the cards. It was hard to get like a rental service or it was too much. But for all of the Arena players out there or Arena-Jason players, if you've been recently invested in Standard, you like to draft a lot, you got all the wild cards, this will be the event for you. I'm really, really excited for uh, for the second Open. I'm really excited to see these grow. I think having these events is really cool. But back to our main topic. Our main topic, uh, as you said earlier, it's like we're in the era of guests. We're, we're in our SNL era. There's a new, new guest host every week. They're all coming in. They're sharing their point of view. They're playing us some nice music. And this week, we get the sweet, sweet stylings of Mason Clark talking about four color in modern and i know mason as a big mason clark fan uh you're excited to talk about four color with him so yeah, let's I'm kind really of dive excited. right in huh i'm a little i might not talk much i might just let him talk i'm just you know, oh yeah a little I mean, starstruck I, well we'll let the guests do the talking but why don't we dive right right into that you know what is four color in modern and why should someone play it mason sure so four color is a kind of nebulous term that describes a big group of decks but often when people are talking about four color they mean a control deck that looks to take over the game by trading one for one on resources and pulling ahead in some various fashion typical things that you'll see in almost all four color decks are omnath solitude to fairy three ren and six uh and then prismatic ending and some other removal that kind of depends on the metagame but it's a yorion deck and it really is just like hey I'm playing all the best removal, all the best card advantage cards. I will trade cards with you. I will pull ahead and I will figure out winning later. So uh, as to why to play it, uh, Modern's a fair format now. There are unfair elements of it. You know, we're seeing the rise of things like Breach and Titan Shift or Scape Shift, I should say, in the metagame. Honestly, as a response to Four Color. But before those things kind of rose up, Modern was incredibly fair. We would see a lot of Urza Saga aggro decks, you know, like Hammer Time. We just talked about Nazi on the show, Merktide as well. Uh, these are things that are top dogs in the format. And the four-color deck is very good against these decks. When you try to play normal fair magic against four-color, its whole deck is really removal spells, ways to win the game, and that might be like, you know, a Teferi 3 or something like that, or card advantage. And so, you know, when everything draws a card or kills something... It's really, really hard for anything that's playing fair magic to win. So this is also why we saw Jund have a small resurgence at the beginning of the MH2 era. And we saw things like Zoomer Jund with the help of Luris. But they fell off before even Luris did because of things like four color ending the metagame. And they had to be more uh, targeted mid-range decks like Death Shadow to actually push the four color deck out back when it had Luris. So... Why do you play it? Because modern is really different than it was four years ago. And all of the answer spells are very, very good. So, Yeah, and there's a lot of variations on this four-color deck, Mason. I know that you have championed what has gone on to win not only the dream hack that you won, but many, many in NRG uh, beyond it as well. 
a list that is kind of more traditional to where the, the beginnings of the deck were in using Eternal Witness and Ephemerate as kind of a loop to uh, as their end game. But there's a lot of other approaches that people have started taking in the last, uh, you know, six months or so to building the, the four-color deck. Do you want to go over maybe why you choose still to play the Eternal Witness build and kind of what it's about for some of these other variants? You know, there's people who play the Delirium builds, like Daryl Ayers has, has championed for a while. They kind of use Emrakul to go over the top and traverse the Umwald and Unholy Heat. Um, there's, you know, people who've played a bunch of Risen Reefs and Elementals, you know, have seen decks built around, like, brought-back synergies. You want to kind of break down what the difference is there and, and what kind of leads to those? Yeah, for sure. So I think I'll talk about all the other decks and work back to Eternal Witness because it is kind of the starting point, but I think these other things are why I am kind of back on Witness because if you did follow my four-color stuff, which I'm pretty active about, I did play Delirium for a little bit about a month and a half ago and did so for about a month and think it was good, but I think that time's going to pass. So... We'll start with Elementals. That was kind of the first iteration on the four-color deck. That deck really looks to out big and go over the top of everything in the format, but at this cost of having less interaction early. So you play more Ephemerates and more Risen Reefs, which are cards that generate a lot of value and give you a lot of lands and cards, but they don't really solve problems. So this was a way to go over the top of the mirror, the idea of being like, hey, I have more cards. If, we're, if all our cards are the same, except I have Risen Reef and I get three or four more cards, I'll beat you. And, you know, that has proven to be basically true. There have been some changes that have made that not the case. But for the most part, the Elementals deck is one of the better in-game decks in all the four-color in the four-color cinematic universe, it is the Thanos, you know? Like, one-on-one, -on -one, it's going to beat you. But the problem is, is that we unfortunately don't live in only four-color mirrors. So the Elementals deck has had a hard time with other decks moving around all the other different four-color builds and getting more lean and low to the ground. And when you have less interaction, sometimes things like Ragavan or Hammer beat you more. And so it turned from good matchups to bad matchups. So Delirium tried to fix this by being bigger than the Eternal Witness stuff uh, in the short term, and having a stronger in-game up front with Emrakul, which Emrakul is sort of a trump card in the mirrors. It's like one of the few ways to get a multiple card advantage thing and catch up from being behind that isn't Supreme Verdict. Uh, and even Supreme Verdict sometimes isn't enough if the Planeswalkers are how they are ahead. So Delirium was like, hey, we're going to be kind of more lean. We're going to do our thing more consistently. We have some interaction still. We're still playing things like Unholy Heat, Prismatic Ending. But with a bunch of traverses and Mishra's bobbles, we're going to try and just turbo out Omnath, Solitude, Embercool, those sort of things, and just win the game that way. And that gave you a little bit of an edge versus the E-Witness decks, because the E-Witness decks were much more reactive and played cards like Counterspell, and were trying to play these super long games, and it allowed you to go under them. Well, against Elementals, you still were going to get outclassed by the Risen Reef, but because you still had some interaction, you could check things like Risen Reef and then play these bigger endgames. And then against other decks of the field, while you're still playing this big endgame that beats a lot of things like Murktide and Hammer, you had some interaction so that you didn't fall completely behind to them and had a better game against the mirror. So you were slightly worse in those spots, but not as bad as Elementals. So that's why the Delirium build came up as sort of a trump to the mirror that didn't concede to the field, right? That was sort of that evolution. Since then, there have been some other... I would argue gimmicky slash weird axis decks. Like we've seen a Wizards hardcore four color deck pop up in the last couple of days with, I believe, Aspiring Spike 
helped promote the idea or maybe championed it. Um, and we've also seen things like the brought back builds, which play Showdown, the Scald, and a bunch of the pitch elementals so they can abuse the card brought back, which if you don't know, it's white, white, bring back two permanents that left the battlefield this turn. So if you evoke a Solitude or Fetch, or you know you have Showdown the Scald in your deck and it sacrifices for chapter three, you can bring those things back. And those have their own advantages and it's gonna take too much time to go into all of them. But for the most part, those are kind of flavor of the week and less of the core established Ewit Delirium Elementals. And Ewit is the one that I've really championed from the beginning and have been basically one of the few people to not leave it for too long and to come back to it. And the reason that I like Eternal Witness now again, and I would say to play it, is the metagame has moved in a lot of ways to attack the four-color deck and kind of prey on us metagaming for each other. And as we have gone more and more down the Delirium route to become more refined and consistent, we've become more exploitable because our game has become less universal. So playing Eternal Witness and this sort of longer end game with counter spells, a bunch of Leyline Bindings, which I'll talk about here in a minute, gives you this really strong catch-all nature to your deck, and you're able to play that more controlling role. And in open field tournaments, you just don't play against four color every round like you do on things like Modo, which is the other big disconnect. So I play predominantly in paper, Daryl, I think, plays predominantly on Modo, and so he's really big on the Delirium build because on Modo, you're going to play just a higher quantity of the Tier 1 decks and the Mirror and Murktide, and that deck is quite good in those spots. Uh, while in Prepper, you will see a lot of Murktide because it's the most popular modern deck. You just don't see as much 4-color, and you don't need to have all that sort of game and all inness And we've mentioned like this advantage, right? We're talking about... like plus eight percentage points for elementals and like plus five for delirium you know like you are favored but not by like an overwhelming amount i have beaten really good elemental players and delirium players playing the eternal witness stuff because your end game is way better if you can get to it and vice versa you know i've played people who are playing the elementals build i'm playing delirium and i was able to just check their risen reefs and win so the eternal witness deck is like the most well-rounded least cute most like hey I respect everyone in the field. I'm going to try and make sure that I am respecting all the decks that I can without giving up too much percentage points by fighting things like Belcher that you can't win. And I'm going to just play a normal control deck and I will just beat people because I have all the best card advantage cards, all the best removal, and people will fall behind and things like Omnath, Yorion, etc. will push me over the top. So that's that. And then... For what it's worth, we keep mentioning the Eternal Witness stuff without me really going into it. So Eternal Witness plus Ephemerate allows you to pick up a card. And then when the Ephemerate flickers the Eternal Witness, Ephemerate is in the graveyard. You pick it up. This creates a loop. So you're always up a card each turn. This is just a preferred end game. Eternal Witness on her own is a passable card in the deck. You can just play her and pick up a card from your graveyard, like an early Solitude or a Counterspell, and you're quite happy. And Ephemerate has strong synergy with all your ETB creatures, like Solitude, Fury, Yorion, Omnath, Ice Fang, Coatl. So they're just two kind of fine cards. And sometimes you end up boarding, you know, half the combo out in certain matchups. But for the most part, it's just a really strong endgame. And if you ever assemble it, especially with Teferi Time Raveler in play, your opponent honestly just can't win. You're just up so many cards and it becomes like, okay, if you didn't answer it the first time, how are you going to answer it the second time? You know, and it just, it snowballs and really just gives you this sort of out that 
you can't really get and gives you an end game that trumps every end game that people are playing outside of combo finishes but you do have to get to the point where it's safe to do that combo so in everything you just said there about so many different versions of four color there's kind of a, a common thread in the difference for all these decks especially for me as someone who has spent a lot of time finding ways to attack the four color deck or try to understand my enemy as a hammer player personally the four color arms race is kind of like people pick the stage of the game that they want to have their extra points in right like playing elementals you're a little better better early because if they don't immediately kill on site those risen reefs they start to snowball the game and run away with it because they have the extra cards you know their pitch elementals draw cards their omnaths draw more cards they use their mana better Whereas, you know, Eternal Witness, sure, it'll always put you up a card, but you're never going to get that second, third, fourth trigger out of it unless you have Ephemerate, which also exposes you. You know, Emrakul is actually, as weird as it sounds, not the biggest way to go over the top of someone in a four-color mirror because doing something like picking up an extra counterspell every turn does eventually just lock the opponent out of the game. But it does kind of burst through, it, like, you know, it's it's... Risen Reef, but the other way all at once. You know, they're, they're going to lose all their cards. You're going to get get to one million for one them uh, and have your creature in play. But, you know, you also spoke to how that kind of arms race within the four-color community has kind of left room to be exploited. And with all the decks popping up that are kind of more combo-y decks, you know, people are playing more Amulet Titan, more decks like uh, like the Rakdos, Rakdos Scam deck, that are really trying to play to either doing something explosive early or, you know, ending the game before you can get to any sort of inevitability. You know, would you still say with such a target on its back that that four color is, you know, we've talked about it before as the best deck in, in modern. Do you still think it's, it's absolutely the best deck or do you think that its positioning is kind of faltered? So it's interesting. One thing I will mention is that I actually think the reason Rakdos Scam has been doing so well recently is because the four color decks have been falling off a bit. I think we saw Scam be a deck back when Rakd when four color was at its peak and just it got oppressed. It's playing too much of a fair plan. If it doesn't scam you with a grief or a blood moon, the game plan just doesn't line up well enough to win. It's just too much of a fair deck. So I think Scam being really good right now is a sign that four color is falling and it is not doing as well. I think that obviously every weekend things change and there becomes like a new number one. But if I had to say, hey, play a thousand tournaments with one deck, I would still say four color. Four color can adapt to everything that's going on. And when you kind of know what you're trying to expect and you can pick your fights, it's really strong. And it doesn't how do i say this it doesn't automatically lose to matchups and the varying degree of how bad the matchup is matters kind of on how your sideboard plan is and how much people are willing to change their strategy to beat you because the kind of the problem with four color is that there aren't sideboard cards to beat it and it's something that we've talked about ad nauseum in the community there are strategies that beat it right so on weekends when people are playing a bunch of Breach and Belcher and uh, Indomitable Creativity, Four Color becomes a lot worse. But on weekends where people are trying to abuse that fact and play a bunch of Murktide because they've seen that ebb and flow, I think Four Color becomes back to being the best deck. So while I think on every weekend it is not the best deck, I think it is always top three in Modern at the current time. And, you know, sometimes it's just the third best choice, but... The third best choice is still really good. And if you get really good at four color, I can attest it, it pays off. So, um, you know, I 
it is hard not to, and I do accept some bias, and I think it is not as good as a lot of people think it is. Like, when I talk to some people about the deck and they're talking to me about my deck, they're like, oh, your deck's like some unbeatable Affinity era Arcman Ravager thing. And it's like, no, it's just really expensive with real life money for you to beat the strategy because you have to do something like we talked about, which is like a breach, an indomitable creativity, a belcher, something that just plays not normal magic. So, you know, you talked a bit about how you have to kind of stay on top of things with the the positioning of, you know, some certain cards. And you, and you did also talk about how the the core of the deck really is, you know, it's Omnath, Solitude, Yorion, Renin Six, Teferi, um, and, and then just a pile of, of miscellaneous, very, very good one-for-ones and very, very good uh, two-for-ones to, to pull you back ahead that aren't those those ones specifically. Do you want to kind of go into maybe how you select the right ones? I know that people play, you know, the Delirium builds obviously play on Holy Heat, and that's kind of a strength of theirs. But I know that you still play some Lightning Bolts. I know that some people have really liked Leyline Binding as an addition to the format. To, to help the deck some people play a bunch of fury some people play dress down some people play you know expressive iteration some people don't how do you really get into picking between those and uh and and what do those kind of different card choices tell tell you when you look at a four color deck list about what they're thinking about sure so i think that often what i'm thinking about when i'm picking my answer spells is what are the threats i'm trying to stop right so for a good example is, uh, even though it has always been part of the format, Ragavan is a threat I know I'm going to have to play against in every modern tournament, right? So I want to make sure I have cards that can beat Ragavan. So an example of that as a non-traditional card I think some people think of is Ice Fang Coatl, right? For a long time in Four Color, back when I was playing it in Vegas, people were playing things like Spreading Seas because they were trying to stop decks like Valakut and Tron and things like that, which are these matchups we have a really hard time with. Well, I chose to play Ice Fang Coatl. Well, nowadays, we always see at least three Ice Fang Coatls. That wasn't the case about nine months ago. And that's like a removal spell that I look at. It's like if I see someone play Ice Fang Coatl, I'm like, okay, they're really respecting Ragavan, Dragon Rage Chandler, Murktide, and Esper Sentinel. Those are like the four cards that card lines up really well against. So when I see Bolts versus Heats, for example, I often will A, look at their deck and see how much are they able to Delirium, right? So if they play a bunch of the, the Delirium cards like Mishra's Bobble, a bunch of Traverses, etc., I'll assume they're playing Heat just because it is kind of a better Bolt a lot of the time. But if their deck isn't really doing those sort of things and they're being a little greedier with it, I will think that they are often maybe disrespecting early aggressive starts and things like Urza Construct tokens that can get out from underneath you. And that's why I play things like Bolt when I don't have a heavy Delirium package because I want to make sure that these early things don't snowball me. And so I don't want an early DRC to get away with the game. You know, I don't want to get a Construct token get too big. Just things like that. So that's why I'll typically play something like Bolt. And then, you know, ramifications from there kind of go like, okay, is this a weekend I want to play Fury or not? How many decks are trying to go wide, right? So like, you know, if Hammer is a big part of the metagame, I would really like some Furies. A lot of the times, you know, they go like Esper Sentinel into Stoneforge Mystic on turn one, two as their best draw versus me. And that's a really good counterplay. So if I look and see a bunch of Furies in someone's list, I'm like, oh yeah, they're probably respecting this deck. Maybe Yawgmoth a little bit too, you know. While not great against them, resetting counters is really good. And it does trade uh, profitably with a Omnath, sorry, a Yawgmoth. Uh, so, you know, that's like something with Fury. And then with cards like Dress Down, 
Uh, if they have a bunch of those, I think they're like, okay, they're really trying to respect Urza Construct tokens and Primeval Titan, along with the Mirror. Those are the three biggest things where Dress Down kills all the Constructs immediately, which is sometimes the only way the Urza decks can actually, or the Saga decks can actually beat you. Uh, Titan decks obviously have a really hard time with Dress Down, just doesn't allow them to chain the Titans. And then the Mirror, it's almost like a soft counterspell. If I were to play an Omnath and you try to respond with a Solitude and I Dress Down to protect it, you know, you're still keeping the Solitude, but I got you to get rid of some other white card and I still have this Omnath and I'm up a card. So those are kind of like things I look at. So when I see a lot of them, I assume people are trying to fight those cards. Now, things like the Eternal Witness deck play all of these cards. You know, you play all at least a Fury, a couple Dress Downs, a couple Bolts and Heats, no matter what. That's just kind of a thing you do. But when I see extra of them, those are kind of things I'm thinking about, or things I think they are thinking about, and they are problems they are trying to solve. The one I didn't mention that you mentioned is Leyline Binding. That is the new hotness in Modern. I played two of that about two weeks ago when I won the 10K with Jesse and Zoe. Um, I'm up to four right now. I think I want to play three, but I think that card might just be such a good catch-all, and it's so easy for it to just be a two-mana answer any permanent in the format that uh, I'm a big Leyline Binding fan, and it's less telling to me and more like almost that stock now. The the bigger tell, honestly, is if they have less than two Leyline Bindings. If they have one or zero, it's like, oh, what are they trying to solve that this doesn't solve? And it might be something like stack-based combo, for example. So that's kind of how you're looking at that. And then there are sideboard things that go along this ways too. I can get more in the nitty-gritty on that, but a lot of the sideboard stuff kind of becomes, do they want to play hammers to solve problems? So an example of a hammer uh, might be like Stony Silence, you know, something like that, or Magus of the Moon, these bullet cards they can tutor that like lock out some matchups versus having these kind of Swiss Army Knives like Force of Vigor, which, you know, solve a little bit of your amulet problem and they solve, you know, a little bit of your hammer problem, a little bit of this problem, but they aren't just, you know, these lights out cards. Same along the lines of like, having Flusterstorm as just like, oh, it's a counterspell that, you know, does a lot of problems, but also is really good against the Cascade deck. So it's, you know, targeting something, but not a lights out target in the way that something like Chalice of the Void would be. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's really interesting how, you know, we talk about how four color is a deck where it's not exploitable by a single hammer, but that kind of goes both ways. It's not able to, because it's an 80 card deck, it's not able to really consistently devote its plan to, okay, I'm going to bring in a bunch of copies of this one answer, and this is going to be my plan, unless it's something that you can find in the mid to late game that'll kind of cinch your game up, like Magus the Moon, which you can tutor for with Aldamri's Call, or Traverse, or, uh, you know, more copies of Endurance, or, you know, like the first or second Flusterstorm, where when, once you draw it, it can kind of be a part of a bigger plan, but it really is about kind of the, the bigger plan. If you had to give advice, and I know you have given lots of advice, uh, you, you've coached a lot of people on how to play four color and have likely lost me a lot of matches of hammer versus four color in the process down the line. No comment. But <laughs> if you were to give someone who was, you know, deciding to pick up this deck, really get to know it, either to learn to play it themselves or just to understand it better, um, and you wanted to give them a couple pieces of advice on how to improve the way that they're playing the deck and how to, you know, play it the Mason Clark way and win every match and be 6-2. Uh, 
Is there any any like big tips you would really give? So the the first one is like an overarching thing is to really play this deck like in its top percentile and do the best out of it. You need to understand modern and you need to kind of understand how every deck ticks, uh, especially if you're going to play the Eternal Witness build. With something like the Traverse build or the Elementals build, you can overwhelm someone with card advantage and bodies and you can win the game. But often with the Eternal Witness deck, uh, I am almost like a surgeon going in and cutting out the problem for my opponent and then playing the game from there. And so knowing what matters in every matchup and what every deck is trying to do is super important. So if you're wanting to play the Eternal Witness deck and you're wanting to really min-max, I would say spend a lot of time going out and reading and watching other content that's not four color. Knowing how other decks are trying to operate and how they're trying to attack you is super pivotal. So the, the most basic example, and I'll ask you, Abe, is what is the most important card out of Murktide against us? Murktide region. Bingo. It's in the name. Right? So the whole game revolves around Murktide, right? That is the thing that is the hardest to answer. And until Leyline Binding, you were very, very light on answers for Murktide. You had Solitude, you had Counterspell, and you had Teferi 3 as like your kind of big ones. And then you had Ice Fang Coatl, but that one lines up poorly against Bolts and Unholy Heats, which they leave in some amount of Unholy Heat and often trim the Bolts, but they still have them, right? So it's not a clean answer. So you're really light on Murktide region answers. So if you are a Murktide player, how are you going to solve the four-color problem? Well, you sit there and you sculpt a hand. You try to attack me a little bit early. I spend some resources. You hope I solitude a Ragavan or whatever. And then you play Murktide plus Counterspell. Or maybe you get really freaky with it and you go Murktide with double Counterspell. And if you're doing that, it's really hard for me to win. I have only a few cards that can actually stop a Murktide Regent. And now you have Counter or double Counterspell, so I have to have two of them, right? And knowing that dictates all my plays as I play Murktide, the Murktide matchup, right? So I might get hit by a Ragavan that you're dashing in order to keep my solitude and try and line up, you know, this Omnath just to invalidate the Ragavan or something along those lines, right? And I won't expend these more valuable resources because I know that these other plans often aren't good enough. They need something like this that I have a hard time answering to go the distance. So doing that and knowing that sort of aspect of every deck is super important and on a more like the fringer a deck gets, often the more house of cards they are, right? And the more that if you know what to counter, the better you get. So I have a really, I would say I have a great understanding of every top modern deck and I've done a lot of work to make sure that I understand what they're trying to do. And I would say I have a good understanding of every other deck in modern. Like I think there's no deck in modern that, it, unless it's your pet deck that I couldn't tell you what it's trying to do. And that's super important. Now that's a lot of homework, but that is, uh, I think a key to it. Another important thing is, cause that kind of goes into threat evaluation and timing of spells along those lines. Waiting is often really good with four color, especially with the eternal witness build, making sure that you're lining up the removal you have with the threats that are actually going to beat you is super important. I can't tell you how many times I've let, you know, just these miscellaneous creatures just hit me like a core outfitter, you know, that has no hammer on it and just it attacks me for like six or eight. And I'm just like, whatever, I need to make sure that this leyline binding, whatever, is going to answer that card exactly. I need to make sure it hits the hammer. They have an Ink Moth Nexus in play. I can't kill that, but I can kill a hammer. And so, you know, I'll go really low and I'll risk that to make sure that I don't lose these other spots. So 
knowing when to wait and do that sort of thing is super important. Same for counterspell. I can't tell you how many times I've had just, you know, a couple of quaddles in hand, a couple of counterspells. My opponent played a pretty good card. Now it's just like, doesn't really matter. I should just play a quaddle here, cantrip ahead a little bit, and then try and trade up on mana on a more important card later in the game. It's just a thing that happens a bunch with this deck. And you can invalidate a lot of threats due to things like Omnath, which allow you to do that. Omnath will just gain you so much life and is often bigger than most things in modern that if you can stick and protect that card, you can get hit like, you know, by these core outfitters and these various things early. And you can make these sort of macro game decisions where you're kind of letting these things happen and playing towards an end game. Because once you stick Omnath, if you have a fetch land, that's seven life back. You know, that's a huge chunk of your life till your opponent has to rework through. And things like Hardcasting Solitude, Hardcasting Fury, Hardcasting Yorion, all these cards immediately impact and stabilize the board. So you can invalidate cards and allow these things to resolve and then just take your time casting these sort of things and get kind of low in a life total. The classic control plan of, you know, use your life total as a resource, stabilize hard with one of these cards and then just counter their thing that's trying to answer yours and you can kind of move on. The last sort of thing along these sort of lines of like, knowing everything and knowing all the decks in modern and kind of knowing what they do and playing your game around it is really think of things on a macro standpoint and like a big picture. If you focus too much on the current game and get, I don't want to say anxious, but for some people I've coached, that's honestly been the case where they get anxious and they kind of blow their remover on something that looks a little threatening. But in reality, you know, a good example is, I've seen a lot of people Lightning Bolt or Unholy Heat DRCs or Dothy Voidwalkers at a red-black scam uh, or the Jun deck. And then a Torok gets played and the Torok is pro-white. And it's like, oh no, I only have a couple bolts in my deck. I, oh gosh, I totally botched this here, you know? And now you're down a bunch of cards and you're just scrambling to find one of your few, you know, creatures that can block it and essentially get you back in the game. So really try and think about things on a big picture standpoint and focusing on big picture stuff will often lead to these big rewards because your deck does just draw cards and kill cards. You will hit a spot in every single four color game you play where you draw four or five lands in a row. Shouldn't be a problem most of the time uh, as long as you've used your resources correctly early. And if you can protect something like an Omnath and you hit that spot, it really doesn't matter. You start gaining so much life that it's okay that if you're even falling behind on board, they probably can't attack you enough to kill you without you attacking back. So those are like kind of the the few big things to say. The only other thing I guess I could add is if you want a, a cheat code for the mirror, the two things that matter are card advantage and mana usage. And they matter in the opposite order. So if whoever has the most mana typically wins, and this is why cards like Ren and Six are so strong in the mirror, because if you have the most mana, since all the cards are the same, you're just churning through the deck so much, you just want to be able to use all of them every single turn. So you can, you know, protect a red and six, make sure you hit all your land drops and have a land heavy hand in the mirror is much stronger than a land light hand in the mirror because you just want to be able to deploy all your spells. And if you do that, you should beat your opponent because you'll have so much more mana used. And when you're trading cards all the time and all you have are card advantage cards, you'll pull ahead. So... That's kind of the, I guess, the big picture things I would say. Is there any questions you have or anything along those lines? No, I think, though, it's really, like, something that I, my brain's kind of been caught on hearing you talk about four color this way 
is thinking about um, talking about Red Black with Ginger last week and just how both Pioneer and Modern, I think, are both in really good spots as formats and are really enjoyable to play. And among them, these decks that are, you know, constantly, you know, in the top two or three decks in conversation uh, are really only that good if you know everything about the decks you're playing against and you're able to play with that macro in mind. I know that some of the most, like stressful macro games I've ever played in Magic were ones where I was playing Red Black against uh, against Arclight Phoenix and I didn't know exactly what the exchanges I was looking to line up were over the course of this long game where everyone was going to have access to resources the whole game. And I hadn't really thought about it before, but despite the much increased power level of Modern, it kind of feels like that's very much the same case in a lot of your matchups, but it's like all of them because all the decks are so powerful, not just uh, not just unique to that kind of specific matchup. We talk about kind of, you know, what the, what all the good things about playing four color are. And we also talk about how there are some rising bad matchups. You have to talk about the bad matchups, what they are, and maybe, you know, what you kind of think about to do with them. You know, what, what your starting point is. If you had a little heuristic for them, um, you know, maybe just lightning around through a few of them that you feel are, are worth talking about. Uh, what are those like? Sure. So I would say matchups... I guess we'll start with matchups that are kind of like 60-40. Like, they're not good for us, but they are the winnable bad matchups. Uh, I think Amulet is the clearest of this. I think Amulet Titan as a strategy does beat our strategy, but with cards like Dress Down, if you can line your counter spells up well and you can stick a threat early, um, it is one of the few bad matchups that you could actually beat. So Amulet, you really, if you're going to beat them, you're going to need to stick a thing early and do the thing. And if you're an amulet player, you just need to chain Titans and cultivator Colossuses. And if you can continuously do that, it is really hard to have enough things to stop all of them over multiple turns. So that's the one matchup where things are kind of close. Living End is a bad matchup. If you have about nine sideboard cards, which is what we saw happen over the summer with my DreamHack win, uh, I had nine sideboard cards for Living End. And if you have that much hate, the matchup becomes winnable. Otherwise, they just fundamentally play a game you can't really stop. And you need to have those sort of high impact cards like Chalice, Endurance, Fluster Storm. Uh, honestly, Verdicts too. You need to have stuff like that just to be able to clean up the board. Because they're playing those sort of games that you can't interact with and play normal fair magic. So those are really hard matchups. Matchups I would say are like 70-30, like are really favored them and you need to play incredibly tight to win, even to have a chance are things like creativity that deck really rose to prominence because of its ability to beat up on us that matchup is honestly you have to play really really well as the four color player and hope that the interaction you have lines up with the way they're trying to turn their tokens into archons right so you have to hope that like they're trying to put a dwarf in play and you can bolt it Versus like, okay, I have this bolt, but like if you have a clue, I'm in huge trouble. We have a treasure, I'm in huge trouble. So that matchup is really bad and there's not much you can do. Um, Breach is a matchup that I have played. Uh, I'll go as far as to say, Abe, that I have played the most of any four color player against Breach because Jesse Robkin, Titty Pills on Twitter, who's been a huge champion of this deck, is a good friend of mine and she'll be on the show next week. So a little teaser for you there. But we have played countless games of Breach versus four color and I have been the punching bag a lot. And it's a matchup that I think I can win if the Breach player is inexperienced. But if they just try to like present a couple problems and then hold the combo over my head the entire game, it becomes this really hard pinch. It's like, 
Splinter Twin-esque from the era without the uh, cleanness of before. You have to play a lot of really bad cards instead of things like Pestermite being your worst card. So that matchup's incredibly hard, and you can do things like bring in Chalice to try and lock them out of certain pieces, but they bring in things like Teferi, and they can kind of just go for you in one turn. So that's a really bad matchup. Scape Shift is a really bad matchup in all the variations. Uh, the Beetle, the Bring the Light ones we've seen, the Teamer ones we've seen, the Titan ones we've seen, they all just play unfair magic in a way you can't really stop. And you kind of just have to hope the fair rate on those decks hit. 90-10 matchups, these are ones that I always get messages from when people first start playing four color, like how do I fix this matchup? And the answer is you can't. Uh, and that's things like Belcher and Storm. So these decks are just so all in linear combo that play in a way that don't interact with anything else in the format. You know, these sort of things don't have any sort of overlap with other cards. When we talk about scape shift, you know, I can play Besaju's and I can maybe hit your Valakuts early or I can counter enough of your things that like I can get through this. But with Storm and Belcher, they're so efficient and so hyper-focused and there aren't cards that overlap with them really outside of things like, you know, Fluster Storm for Storm, Storm and, you know, hope they play in an early Belcher and then you can Besaju it. And since you lack any, you just can't have enough pressure to kill these players and you have to tap out, they'll eventually kill you. So... Those are matchups where it's like if you if your local LGS is literally only four color players, you should play Belcher. You, you cannot lose. They cannot kill you quick enough. They'll eventually tap out and you can go for it. And, you know, if you get unlucky and it happens once, there's no way it'll happen two more times. So those are sort of the really, really bad matchups that are prevalent in modern storm. Not as much, but you, there are people on paper who just will play storm no matter what. So I always kind of mentioned it in the like, hey, you can't win against this deck. So just a question about the amulet matchup. Do you feel like by relying more on Leyline Binding, as people kind of shift towards that, uh, especially as that's one of your, you know, it's a card that answers Murktide region, which is really important, but often kind of being able to overlap a removal spell that answers Murktide region or Primeval Titan is like why cards like Unholy Heat start to be played is that they have to have the, the full seven uh, or eight Murktide region in order to, to have it be safe against an Unholy Heat. But do you find that binding against the amulet matchup where they have a lot of copies of Besaju has made that fall a little bit more as you kind of cut answers that maybe would have been better in that matchup for uh, for something maybe a little weaker? It is really awkward because they do play a bunch of Besajus and they can tutor up, you know, the Titan hits and they go, okay, I'm going to grab Bounce Land Besaju if they think I have Leyline Binding. Or I already have a Leyline Binding answering a Titan and they do that, right? That's a really problematic uh, lineup. I do think that it is something that is going to be high variance in how it plays out, and it's going to matter a lot on how they're playing. Because if you don't grab the Besaju, or you had to use the Besaju on something like Dress Down, which is ha happens a lot actually, you'd be surprised how much your Dress Down gets Besajued when something like Cultivator Colossus is involved, because it's going to hard kill the Cultivator Colossus. So they have to Besaju it, give up the land. So I think it is a spot where the card that it's replacing in my list was Lightning Bolt um, or in Holy Heat. And so I think it's about the same, but it has a higher liability. So I don't have a clear answer for you, but my thought is, is that if my opponent doesn't play around Leyline Binding, it is going to be very easy to beat them. And if they don't, I have to be very tactical about how I put my bindings in play. And I have to keep that in mind. One thing about Binding, I think, that doesn't get enough respect is that it does catch all. So I think binding a amulet is something that I'll probably end up doing a good bit 
where I was prismatic ending prismatic ending amulets a lot, I'll probably end up binding them as well. And that will slow down the Titan player. And often if I can stick something like Yorion or a Hardcast Solitude, you can keep one or two Titans off the board enough. And if they're not getting generating a lot of mana and they're having to pack for the Titan specifically, then you can pull ahead. Post-board, you also have things like Chalice of the Void, which you bring in in that matchup because the problem with the matchup is that Titan can just go get T-West, which gets packed, which gets the next best threat, right? So if you can turn that aspect of their deck off, then you have a much easier time. So the Besagers are already going to be taxed between Dress Down, Binding, and Chalice of the Void. So it is a definite problem, and I'm really worried about what happens when they start playing three Besagers, which I think is a totally reasonable thing to do as someone who's played uh, just a bunch of Amulet before I played a bunch of four color. So I don't know. It's a really weird dance we're playing and i'm just gonna have to see kind of how they respond and keep going because they've been doing stuff like playing hydroid crisis if you've been out of the amulet loop for a little bit now and that's a response to murktide region and us as four color and so like it's really easy for them to find a Besaju if they're drawing four or five cards you know in the mid game so i don't know exactly how it's gonna go but i know that for personally my bolts have become uh bindings so it's you know a lot easier for me to kind of justify the that being there, because I was going to have to double bolt anyways to kill a Titan. So, I don't know. It's a little weird. It also matters, like, if they play Karn the Great Creator and they go and get Liquid Metal Coating, you're so happy to have Leyline Binding. Just, you know, not getting immediately Stone Rained out of the game was a way that would happen to you. You lose a lot of these games just because, you know, you can't provide the pressure quick enough. They slam a Karn. You don't have a counter spell. You die. So, so it's a really weird matchup. Yeah, definitely. I haven't even thought about the fact that their besages were getting extremely taxed. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see kind of how um, both decks adapt to uh, to the card over time because, you know, modern moves pretty slow despite it being uh, one of those popular formats. Kind of in closing here, we'd like to, like to give a shout out to the patrons and let them ask some questions of our guests. And while you're not really, like, I know I, I handed up, you are not really a guest of the show, you are a host of the show. Um, we did have time for an extra patron question here that I thought was pretty pretty important. And uh, that comes from Yeoman5, who asks, what are some of the opening sequences you really look for to enable, uh, you know, setting up for your strong mid to late game that Four Color has? And what are some of the closing pay- play patterns you're looking to get towards in most of your games too? So kind of, you know, to boil it down, what are you looking for in your, kind of in your opening hands? What are the the ways you like to sequence your spells out? Um, and what are kind of the ways that you're like, okay, I've got this game locked up. This is how I'm trying to get it to look uh, for someone who's maybe newer to, to the archetype. Yeah, this is a great question. Something comes up a lot in coaching. And luckily, you know, I've got a whole bit and routine about it. So every game of four color, the beginning and the end look the same. Sometimes the players are slightly different at the end, but the middle is all you really have to figure out. So I can give you a little rundown in the beginning. So when it comes to mana, which is a thing that scares a lot of people early, if you're playing my Eternal Witness build of the deck, if you get Jeskai Triome, Breeding Pool, Forest as your first three lands, ideally Jeskai first, um, your mana will work for the whole game outside of Supreme Verdict. You need to get one more white source. So you'll be able to cast everything else and do everything in your deck. And so I'm looking to enable that sort of mana early, and I'm looking to find something to protect as like a protect the queen strategy and take over the game, assuming I'm in the dark. Now, if I know the matchup, 
and maybe something will change in that sort of sense. Like maybe I want extra removal against an aggro deck, but in the dark game one, I want some queen to protect. So Ren and Six, Teferi, Omnath, those are the sort of cards I'm looking to have and then have just some interaction and lands. Um, I've done a lot of like, what's the mulligan? Like, should you keep this hand with patrons? Or sorry, with uh, coaching. And honestly, a lot of the time, if your hand is like three lands or uh, two lands and a Ren and Six, if, as long as one's a fetch, some interaction and a card that does something, it's a keep. You just need to interact with people and then play something that you can force the game to be about. The queen you're protecting often early, sorry, the queen you're playing early is often a martyr for the cause. So you play like a Teferi with this red and six and your opponent expends a lot of resources trying to push through and kill it. And then you've been answering their stuff back. So now they're kind of left at this low resource game for them, but you have been moving through a lot of cards or making sure you hit all your land drops, you know? And so while you spent the last turn setting up a Yorion, right? Your opponent tried to, kill the Ren and Six, and now it's like, okay, well, I'm going to draw a couple cards off these Abundant Gross with the Yorion, push ahead into the mid game, figure it out. So early, we want to get some Martyr for the cause. If you could end up protecting something like a Teferi, which should make the game really awkward for them, or a Ren and Six, which can win the game with an ultimate. If you do that, that's great. Easy mode round. We love to have those. Most of the time, that's going to happen. You're going to pull ahead on cards, figure out the mid game like we talked about, and then we get to the end game. The end game often looks like Yorion killing someone, which sounds really stupid, but you eventually hit a point in the game where you're Delver and you have a Yorion and Yorion attacks for four, attacks for four, and then they kind of concede before it's going to kill them. That's very often how the games play out. Sometimes it's Omnath, but typically if Omnath sticks early, you're not really getting to a late game and you kind of run your opponent over. But most of the time you just have this four or five in exile that kind of draws two or three cards. You grab it and you take over the game. Uh, the only other end game besides that that really comes up that isn't the Eternal Witness loop is the Teferi Yorion loop, which we haven't talked about yet. But basically, if you can stick a Yorion and you're protecting and attacking someone, you can often play a Teferi, attack with your Yorion, unsummon your Yorion with Teferi, replay Yorion, blink everything, and now you're in the same spot with a Vigilance 4 or 5. And if you've pulled ahead, that's, you know, I'm talking about committing five mana at minimum every turn to replay Yorion. That's actually not a big ask with this deck in Modern. It takes a little bit to get there, uh, but against all the fair decks, it's totally doable. And it's honestly more how I win games in the Eternal Witness loop. But every four color deck can do it. We just, it doesn't get a lot of talk. So that is probably my most common in game where I flicker that, you know, I draw a card off the Teferi. I flicker like an Abundant Growth. And I just draw three cards a turn make a land drop every turn. And even if they end up killing the Yorion before it kills them, that's often, you know, like plus six cards. And you're like, okay, I'm up six. I still have this Teferi. Go, you know? And you just, that sort of end game is how you win most of the games. The only other end game worth mentioning is the Eternal Witness loop, uh, which I explained earlier in the show, but that often is just your opponent dying and not wanting to concede. So, you know, those are the end games. They all look the same. Every four color game bleeds together in the end, but the middle is the cool part. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for giving us all this knowledge, Mason. It was awesome having you. Mason, do you have any last words for Mason? What a handsome guest we had today. <laughs> no last words here. Uh, I will mention it at the end of the show again, but I do offer coaching for this deck and I uh, have a cyborg guy and everything, blah, blah, blah. But this deck is not as 
it is hard. Like I just told you about how earlier to play it as optimal. You need to know everything that's going on in modern, but it is not as hard as people say. And what I'm talking about doing with knowing everything going on is juicing every last percentage point. This deck is just really strong and it will cover your mistakes as long as you don't die early. So if you think that this would be something that you enjoy playing, I highly suggest playing it. All right. Well, with that, I'm going to turn the show over to Mason. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Mason. Mason's other personality, his ego. Mason yeah. underscore. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to turn it over to Mason for our patron question, not related to the topic. Yeah, so we had a Patreon question. Uh, this is one of the perks of being a patron. If you want to go support the show, you go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. And the show will always be free. That's a way to help. And you get your name shouted earlier in the show, like we saw with Liam. And then here at the end, you get to ask a question and get it picked. And Adrian says, I've always struggled in Constructed, unless I had a lot of reps with the deck. Without reps, I make careless mistakes or punt away a few games because of ignorance of the deck I'm piling or not knowing what all is in the format and what matters in the matchups. My question is, how do I improve to the point where I don't need a million reps to do well? Abe, I'm going to let you go off first here. There's been a lot of Mason talk on this episode, so I'm curious to see what you have to say about this. Yeah, this is actually a question that's like really up my alley because this is something that I kind of like innately arrived at personally like a few years ago. Maybe more than that now because it's what, like 2022. Yeah, so like before I was even like playing a lot of SCGs, this was something that was pretty easy for me was to pick up a deck and, and figure out what it was trying to do. And really a lot of that came from studying uh like magic theory and understanding really what the engine of the game was trying to do and and the positions where decks were like okay this is where they're winning or this is where they're losing and then trying to use the tools that i have available to me when i'm looking at a deck and the tools my opponent has available to them to set up the spot where okay now i'm the one who's doing the thing and then making all my decisions with that in mind so you know, something that I've I've touted a lot is the the marginal value of uh, like studying versus playing. For me, I'm someone who studied way too much for a long time, and as soon as I started studying a lot of deck lists and looking at the format and theorizing a lot, and then also playing a little bit to work with that, it really gave me huge returns on not only you know my performance but also my understanding of what was going on. And so I think that for you, Adrian, I would say to spend a little bit more time looking at the deck list and really thinking critically about what is this deck trying to do? You know, maybe watch some matches of people playing the deck, uh, you know, either find content or, um, you know, fi find players locally who play the deck and watch them play and just see, you know, okay, what does the game look like when they're winning, when they're losing? Um, you know, what is the end game they're kind of working towards? And then once you kind of get a sense for how games of magic tend to end winning or losing for different kinds of decks getting to that state of like oh well the control player is drawing multiple cards a turn and the board's even so they're going to win over the next few turns by just being up too many cards or you know the aggressive deck is has successfully like gotten through the the problem that was in its way and now is going to be able to throw the rest of its resources away to deal exactly lethal things like that are pretty universal in magic in my experience and so taking time to either you know memorize some of those and then think about those when you're kind of a platonic ideal of magic uh when you're playing a new deck or 
just taking the time to study what's going on in the format a little bit more um, and thinking about it critically, really theorizing what a deck is supposed to do and what it's supposed to look like um, before you play. And I think that over time you'll build that skill and, and have a lot easier time picking up a deck. Yeah, I agree with all of that. If I had to add any little thing onto it, I would start, like, if you can't play a bunch of the deck, try and look at, like Abe said earlier, look at what's going on in the format and try and think about, okay, what is this deck doing? What is that deck doing? And what does it mean when these cards meet in the sandbox? And try to think about that sort of thing. And you can, like Abe just mentioned, a bunch of stuff there that can help with that. But just try to understand, like, what matters and, like, okay, does Bone Crusher Giant matter in this matchup? You know, like, is this something that, you know, is a card that I should be fighting over? Or is it something that, like, it's just a role player and it will be invalidated by a card like Shieldred? You know, like, do I need to worry about the 4-3 body if I have this 4-5 lining up against it, you know? Or, like, oh, why are they making these attacks? Because of something like Stomp. So maybe that's why a reason why, you know? And just try to figure out how the cards interact is really like the only thing I can say uh, outside of, you know, listening to things and doing that sort of thing. But I know that you're an avid content consumer, but maybe if you're someone who has a similar problem to Adrian out there, uh, listening and reading content and watching content like Twitch streams and areas you can do that, I think are really important and are really good ways to shortcut playing games, especially if you can watch YouTube videos on like, you know, 1.5 speed, you can listen to podcasts, you can do that sort of stuff. And just sort of, Trying to get a plan so that you can enact that plan is a really good place to be. Plan beats no plan every time. So even if your plan isn't the best, if you're working towards some end game, that's something that you can do and then you can account for and fix on the fly. So that's my uh, suggestion there. The other way to get your question around the show is go to youtube.com slash constructed criticism. This week's YouTube comment is from Ace and Ace says, outstanding episode Great job, boys. And I have to agree, you know, I wasn't there last week, Abe. I went and listened to having uh, Ginger on the show talk about Red Black, and I thought it was really good, and I enjoyed it. And I think y'all did a great job of talking to Derek and kind of letting the world see behind the mask that is Misplaced Ginger, the way he talks about magic and thinks about it. I think it's really interesting. I think there was some really interesting conversation about stuff from, you know, Graveyard Trespasser to just the deck and the format at large, so... Nick, y'all did do a great job. If you want to check out the rest of the Constructed Criticism Network, you should definitely do that. We have Common Knowledge, which is a Popper podcast. You want to check out that one. Popper is in a wild place now, Abe. They just banned the initiative. I won't quiz you on what it does because I'm sure you know what it does. Uh, and then you also have Drafting Archetypes with Sam Black. Uh, that is an all-limited podcast. Dominar United, it's getting touted as a great limited format. A lot of people are having a lot of fun. I saw some people tweeting about how there are so many different archetypes you can draft and they all feel strong and palliative to one another. So if you're a big limited lover and you haven't checked out that podcast before, make sure to do that. Abe, if someone wants to find you, where can they go? You can find me over at twitter.com slash more nothings. You know, I tweet ideas there sometimes. You can also DM me if you would like coaching. Um, I do still have a few slots that I can fill up. And so uh, feel free to hit me there. How about you, Mason? You can find me over at twitter.com at Mason E. Clark. You can find me on Card Kingdom each and every week writing articles there. Find me at twitch.tv slash the Mason Clark. And if you're looking for coaching, I do have some availabilities. You can reach out to me on social media like we talked about, or you can reach out to me via email with my email being Mason E. Clark at gmail.com. 
Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Constructor Chris, and we'll see you all next week with a special guest for CCNTG. Oh,